Well, I do welcome you to uh, join with me in reading Ecclesiastes. We're going to start today on the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes. It begins in 610. It's kind of an odd place for the second half, but most commentators agree that we're starting the second half at 610, but remember that the chapters and verses were added later to the Bible, and uh, this division is, is somewhat random, but we're about halfway through, and today we're going to be looking at this 610 through 714. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what, has, what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. As I've gotten older, it feels like the years are shorter. You know, you, 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 you feel like we just celebrated Christmas when you get to a certain age, and, and each year seems to be going faster and faster and faster. Time really does roll downhill and pick up speed as you age. However... I think 2020 has been the longest year of our lives, and I know that many people would agree. We've had a lot of adversity this year, and I know everyone is looking forward to a new year with the promise of new beginnings and of change and hope, and I hope it comes. But how do we deal with adversity in life? This is a great text to be looking at in the times in which we're living. Great, appropriate passage for us dealing with all the problems that we have. And I know that many people in our congregation are going through personal difficult times with illness and loss so forth. So 
a wonderful passage for us to be reminded of some things that will help us deal with adversity, deal with difficult days. Now, the first thing that we see here is why you should not argue with God about your circumstances. And we see that in the first couple of verses. He begins in verse 10 saying, Whatever has come to be has already been named. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Now, to name something means that you have dominion over it. You know, God created everything and he named it. You remember Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We move on. God called the dry land earth that he had created, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And we could go on through the first chapter of Genesis and see where God named things after he created it. He has dominion over it. And then when God created Adam, he gave Adam dominion over the animals. And what did Adam do? He named the animals. So naming something means that you have dominion over it, that you rule over it. So when it says that whatever has come to be has already been named, it means that God has created and has dominion over everything that happens. Every circumstance of life is under his domain. There's not one rogue atom in this universe that's not serving his purpose. He's all-knowing. He's never surprised at anything. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows what's going on in your life. Nothing past, present, or future is hidden from God's sight. Everything happens according to his plan. And that's what Solomon is telling us here. On the other hand, verse 10 does go on to say, It is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. And the, and the name Adam, the word Adam, means of the earth. So it is known what man is. It is known what Adam is and all of his descendants. They are of the earth. They are dust. Man is dust. God is eternal. Man is finite. He is limited. God is all-knowing. But Adam is just dust. God is sovereign over everything. Nothing is out from under his control. Adam, mankind, is impotent, weak, and limited. Therefore, as he says, man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he, namely God. Man cannot make a case against God. That word dispute there uh, is, a, is a legal term. It's a formal dispute. You can't make a case against God. God has made everything as it is, including your circumstances. So because man is weak and limited in his knowledge, he's not able to argue with God. He can't make a case and prove that God is guilty of wrongdoing. He's limited. He doesn't have all the facts. He doesn't 
see the future. He doesn't know everything. Man is limited, but God is not. So to sum it all up, God is God and you are not. So arguing is vain. That's what he says in verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? You can argue with God about your life until you're blue in the face, but it's vain, it's pointless, it's futile. And, he, and here's why. Verse 12. He gives us two reasons in the form of questions. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? How do you know what's good and what's bad in your life? Second question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You can't know what's good because you don't know the future. You don't know how things are going to work out. So, you know, you think about the circumstances of your, of your life from the past. Maybe you went through difficult seasons in your life, but you can go back and you can look and say, here are some good things that came about because of that, because of that difficult circumstance in my life. See, man is not all-knowing, therefore he does not know what is good for him in his life, especially since he can't see what the future holds. You think you know what's best for you, but you do not, because you cannot tell the future. You do not know how things are going to work out. Now, no one chooses to go through difficult circumstances when they do not know what the outcome will be. You know, if, if, if I decide to go exercise, that's an adverse, difficult circumstance for me because I'm out of shape and overweight. And, and, and the only reason that I would choose to do that is because there's a goal in sight. I know it's good for me, and there's some positive things I can get from that. But I would never choose certain things without knowing that there's some good that would come about it. I don't know what's best, but God knows everything. God knows all past, present, future. So he's working. He's doing his work in life. And you see from examples in the Bible and in our own lives how God uses difficult circumstances to bring good ends. Take, for example, Joseph. You know, Joseph was the favored son of Jacob uh, over all of his brothers. He had the fancy coat, and, and, you know, he was a kind of a smart, proud kind of guy when he was a young man, and his brothers didn't like it, and they ended up selling him into slavery, and he was taken to Egypt. And, of course, we know that once he was there, he was serving in Potiphar's house, and then he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in prison, and basically forgotten there for a long time. You think about Joseph and those circumstances of his life. I'm sure when he was there in prison, he was thinking, what in the world is this? How did I get to this place you know, completely unjust. He was falsely accused, falsely put in prison. He was falsely sold into slavery. All these things, negative things were happening in his life. But you know how the story ends up. He interprets some dreams, and even then, you know, the baker and the wine, wine taster for the king were there in prison with him, and he 
told him their future. And he, and he told the cupbearer, you know, when you get out, remember me. But he didn't. And he was still languishing in prison, probably wondering, what, what was God doing? What is my life like? Am I going to die here? Maybe he even gave up hope. Who knows? But he was remembered. And he went to the king and was able to interpret the king's dream. And he was placed second in command over Egypt. And the whole point was that during this famine that was coming that God had revealed to him, he was able to save his family, the people of God, the children of, of Jacob, the children of Israel. They moved to the land of, of Goshen there in Egypt, and they were able to grow and flourish and multiply because of the difficulty that Joseph went through in his life. You remember at the end, after Jacob dies and the brothers go, okay, now that our father's dead, Joseph's going to get his revenge. He's got all the power. And then Joseph turns to them and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He knew what the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. He, he had learned by his experience all that difficult trial that he went through in his life. Terrible, terrible circumstances ended up saving many lives and preserving the people of God. So see, he, when he's in the prison, he couldn't see the future. And he was probably, if, I, if it were me, he'd be moaning and groaning about my circumstances. But once he got to the end, he could see. see. When we're going through something, we don't know the outcome of it. We don't know what's going to happen because we can't tell the future. And sometimes those things that we think are bad turn out to be good in the long run. Now, he gives us some examples beginning in chapter 7, and I'll just run through them rather quickly. Uh, some things that we think are good, but, or, or maybe not as good as some other things, he's showing us how our judgment can be off. A good name is better than precious ointment. You know, we might think precious ointment, that's something that's expensive, uh, some commodity that we have that makes us smell good and beautiful, uh, we would desire those things, that precious ointment, but it's better, you know, we can get all dolled up, we can look good, and we think that's good to be sharp, to look nice, to be well-groomed. But he says a good name is better than that. A good name is better than that. We might not think that. Well, of course, we want our reputation to be good. But what is our value? We, see, we can value the wrong thing. Verse 2, it is better go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. Now, who would think of that? Who would think that going to the house of mourning is a good thing? Solomon knows in his wisdom. This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He's saying it's better to go to the house of mourning because you learn something. You grasp something about the brevity of life. You see in stark reality the smallness of your life. That, that, that's the end for all of us. And you can take it to heart and learn wisdom from it. And that's better than going about without any thought of the brevity of life. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Going through difficult circumstances helps us to know what true joy is. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. They, fools pass their life, you know, without regard to anything. They're just having fun and, and frivolous, and they don't ever think of the deeper things or the eternal things. 
And he goes on in verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. No one likes to be rebuked, but it's in your best interest if it's from someone who is wise and cares for you. And then verse 7 is a caveat. It's good to be wise, but even wise people can be corrupt in our world. So see, we, we often have a limited perspective on things, and we don't see things as they truly are, and we, we might shy away from difficult things but, and miss the good things that come from going through difficult circumstances. And he goes on in verse 8. The end, he makes this point, the end tells you how things are. So, verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. See, when you get to the end of something, you can see the good that comes out of it. And if you're patient through your adversity, when you get to the end, you will see. So don't be angry. Don't be quick to be angry, because it just lodges in the hearts of fools. It's not how the wise behave. Verse 10 reiterates this. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know, we long for the good old days. The good old days, pre-coronavirus days. Wouldn't that be nice? But he says, don't long for the good old days because you don't know the result of these days. God is going to do something through this. We can't see it because it's in the future somewhere. But God is working. We need wisdom in the day of adversity. And that's what he says in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. If you have an inheritance and you're wise, you'll, you'll preserve it. You'll use it, use it well. Uh, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. If you have money, you know, money lends you certain protections in life. Well, wisdom is the same way. Wisdom about your adverse circumstances is valuable for traveling this journey of life that we're on. We need wisdom for the difficulties. Now, how should we respond? And this is what he says. This is really the crux of the matter here in verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? He's created everything. He's, his, he, everything is under his dominion. Time, eternity, our lives are all under his dominion. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. You know, enjoy the good things that God has given to us. He says that over and over in Ecclesiastes, that we should, that we should uh, enjoy our toil and find joy in it and give thanks to God for providing for us and giving us these good things. So in the day of prosperity, yes, be joyful. And then the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. God gives us days of prosperity and God gives us days of adversity. He gives them both. He gives them both. Consider his work. What is his work? What is he doing? By prospering you, by giving you adversity, what is he doing? Now, we're on the other side of, of the cross now. You know, Solomon was, on the, was before the cross, before Christ came into the world. So we have a bit more light than Solomon does, though he's... He's right on in what he's saying. But we have more precious promises as, as Christians. We can look at the darkest, darkest, most adverse circumstance that has ever been known on the face of the earth, and that is when 
Christ came to earth and so unjustly suffered. He was perfect in every way. Like no, I mean, without peer, obviously, because he was not a sinner like every other human being. But yet he still suffered and he was unjustly put to death and he was placed in someone else's grave. He suffered the indignity of of death for a crime that he did not commit, put to death by wicked men unjustly. It was so dark that even the sun stopped shining in that time when he was on the cross. Utter darkness. Yet what do we have out of that desperate, adverse circumstance? Resurrection. New life. Salvation. The grain of wheat fell to the ground and up sprang a harvest in Christ. And those who are united by faith to Christ are united to him in everything. Yes, we'd like to think about, okay, you know, when I'm by faith united to Christ, I have his righteousness credited to, to me. Everything that he did in his life, uh, his, all the good things, gets credited to my account. And his death on the cross uh, pays the penalty for my sin. And we like to think about that part of our union with Christ. But not only are we united to Christ in his life, but we're also united to Christ in his death. Yes, and we're also united to Christ in his resurrection. But that can sustain us through the days of adversity, knowing that. Because when we're united to Christ, we know, as Paul says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is God's work? In the day of adversity, in the day of prosperity, we know God is the one who is working. God has given both. So what is his work? We're supposed to consider the works of God, Solomon says. Well, God's work is for the believer to conform us to the image of his son. And everything that's going, we're going through is towards that purpose. The good, the bad, everything. We can be assured of that. Paul knew this when he's talking about sharing his testimony to the Philippians. He was talking about how he was uh, self-righteous. He was uh, really a shining star in his day as a, one of the up-and-coming young Pharisees, a great scholar, very zealous for uh, God's law. But he says, well, he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is a Jewish way of saying I was the best Hebrew there ever was. Um, nobody could top me in the Hebrew department. Uh, he, he was righteous, blameless, he says, under the law. But what does he say? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I referred to that earlier. But then he says this, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So for Paul and for us as believers, we are united to Christ in everything. In everything, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Therefore, it says that we will suffer persecution for our faith. We will suffer for righteousness' sake if we're a believer. And I think it even goes deeper than that. You know, we might suffer for righteousness' sake, but there's always a resurrection. You know, we can, we can see the good that comes from that. If we suffer for righteousness' sake, we're putting forth a good testimony to the world. But I think it goes even deeper than that. When we suffer for righteousness' sake, yes, we have a cause, but what about suffering cancer? What about suffering some other ailment? What about the loss of a loved one? How are these things tending towards a resurrection? Well, yes, we'll be resurrected one day, but I think even in the midst of our lives, as we walk by faith in Christ showing our faith by how we deal with the difficult circumstances, it causes a resurrection not only in our lives but in other people's lives. I was feeling kind of down the other day when I got to work. Uh, I don't know, just had the blues, kind of feeling sorry for myself. And then uh, someone in the congregation called me, and this person is going through a very difficult time. A, it made me, kind of jolted me into thinking, okay, well, I don't really have any problems compared to this person's problems. But as I saw how this person was trusting in the Lord in the midst of, of a very difficult circumstance, walking with the Lord, remembering what His Word says and trusting in it, it lifted my soul. It encouraged my heart to see how they were living by faith in spite of a circumstance that I would never want to go through. And I've seen that in several people's lives. I've seen it in the way that some people have died. They've died well in faith, and that's encouraged me in my faith. And I know you have experienced that as well. See, the promise for the believer is that no matter where we die, there's always going to be a resurrection. And through that death, through that difficulty, through the adversity, God is working to conform us to Christ's image, always. And when we walk by faith like Jesus walked by faith through his circumstances, maybe people will say, like the, the person at the cross, surely, surely Jesus was the Son of God. You'll see that in your life as you point to Christ by your faith. So I want to encourage you. I know that some of you are going through very difficult circumstances in your lives, and we're all in the midst of just the general circumstances, difficult circumstances that we have going on in the world and in our nation today. But just continue to consider the work of God and the deeper promises that we have in the New Testament that promise that God is working, even through the most difficult circumstances, to conform us to the image of Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Cling to his word in the midst of your trial, and you will, you will have that resurrection power in your life. You will exhibit it, and you will experience it. If not immediately, you certainly will experience when Christ returns 
and we will all be with him forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word that we have reassurance that this world that often seems capricious and random and difficult is all under your control. And the circumstances of our lives, it may seem very dark. We know, Lord, that even through the valley of the shadow of death, we, we don't have to fear any evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. We pray, Lord, that your word would penetrate down deep into our hearts and that we would just ooze out the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word, that we would live it out in all the circumstances of life and that you would be our God and we would be your people. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you today that, that have refused to turn to you. We pray, Lord, for them. They don't have any assurance in their lives of that their circumstances are under anyone's control. We pray, Lord, that they would cry out to you and come to know you as well so that they can have that assurance that you are doing a great work in their lives. Lord, we pray that uh, you would be with us now as we come to your table to commune with you, to be, we're united to you, but now we are coming to have fellowship with you as we've been doing here, listening to your word. We pray, Lord, that you administer to us in Jesus' name. Amen.